We have had a good worship already through the reminder of the gospel going out in, in our nation and across our continent to a wonderful testimony of God's salvation and his provision to worship. And now we come to his word, continuing our worship as we look at Romans chapter 7. If you didn't catch it during children's sermon uh, or in your Sunday school class, uh, this month we are inviting our church family to uh, look forward to Easter with great anticipation, to look forward to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and to celebrate uh, what he has done in our lives. Um, but we, as we look forward to that, we are inviting you and challenging you uh, to go out and to make contacts, to invite others to participate in that celebration as well, um, especially those that uh, don't know him yet and haven't heard uh, maybe the fullness of the gospel. And so over the next four weeks, we are making the challenge that we as a church would make 300 contacts. That may be that you pick one person and make one contact a week for the next four weeks um, whether you pray with them, whether the, you give them an invitation to Easter service, whether you have a uh, you share your testimony with them or do a gospel-centered conversation with them, uh, we would challenge you to do that, or whether you want to spread those contacts over several different people. Every week uh, during that time, every Sunday during March, we're going to be putting something in your hand to help you to do that. This week, um, we are putting in your hand a prayer guide from the North American Mission Board, uh, who you just saw a video of just a moment ago, um, that will take you on a, on a tour for the next 30 days to pray for those that you're making those contacts with, that the Lord would do a, a wonderful work in their life and in your life as well. And so I would encourage you, if you didn't get one of those in Sunday school, there's some on the back table that you would grab those. Um, but we want to, as a church, take advantage of this invitation that Christ has given us to come and to know his grace, but then to go out and to proclaim his kingdom, which he has so graciously invited us to be a part of. And so I hope uh, that you will join us as we do that. As we come back to Romans, though, uh, this morning in chapter 7, Paul is continuing to look at a few different themes. He's continuing, of course, to look at the gospel he is also taking a look at our, how we have moved from the law into grace under Jesus Christ. And not only that, but that how there is a still an ongoing struggle that happens in the life of a believer. And so we're going to look at all of those things this morning. We're going to start by reading the entirety of chapter 7. And so if you would, please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's, God's word this morning. We're going to start in verse 1. We're going to go through the entire passage. Um, as always, if you need a break in the middle, feel free to do that. But this morning, we come to him together. Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers... For I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if she, her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers... You also have died to the law through the body of Christ, 
so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died that which held us kept captive so that we may serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came in, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and, kill, and, and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might be, become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be the law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your word. We thank you that you desire for us to grow and to mature in our faith and in our stature before you, that you desire for us to not remain as we are, but to look more and more like Christ, that you desire for us not to just merely have salvation, but to live in our salvation and to experience the fullness of your grace and your mercy and your love. Father, I pray this morning as we look at your word, that you would speak to us, that you would mold us, that you would shape us, that you would challenge us, that you would convict us, Lord, that you would be with us. Father, we pray all of this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 
As we come to Romans chapter 7, uh, we continue on, as I said earlier, with some of the themes that Roman that Paul has uh, spoken of in previous chapters, um, because as we have said many times, this letter that Paul writes, uh, maybe more than any other letter in the New Testament, is written in an essay kind of style format or essay format. If you go back to chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, you see the thesis of the document. He says in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And Paul continues on then to point out and to provide us with supporting points for that thesis. And so just quickly, as has become our custom, we want to take a quick review of where we have come so far as Paul has done just that. He begins by helping us to understand why we need the gospel at all. Why is it that we even celebrate this good news that has been given to us through Jesus Christ and through the saints that have handed it down generation after generation? It's because we have all broken God's law, every single one of us. Paul gives a list going back to chapter 1. He says there, starting in verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. And so Paul gives us this list, and if you can't identify with murdering someone, I'm pretty sure you can probably identify with disobeying your parents. Even the youngest of us can identify with that list. And so through that, we understand, we grasp hold of the idea that we have all broken God's law. And so therefore, when we stand before a holy God who is just, then we are found guilty, and rightfully so. We are justly convicted. Nothing escapes his, his view. Nothing escapes his wisdom. And so we find that standing before holy God, we are guilty. And because we are guilty, we are sentenced according to the law that we have broken. Just like here, if you uh, get a speeding ticket, based on how fast you were going over the limit, is going to be the, there's a prescription for how much of a fine that you're going to receive. In the same way, if you steal something or you murder someone, the law spells out, this shall be the penalty. In the same way, when you break the eternal law of God, there is a penalty that goes along with it. And because it is an eternal God that you sinned against, and because it is an eternal law that you broke, then the sentence, understandably, is eternal as well. And the sentence is death. And not just death of the physical, but death of the soul in a place called hell for all of eternity. Paul paints a pretty grim picture of why we need the gospel. He says we can't just be good enough at that point. We can't just make it happen and suddenly gain God's favor. We need help. And so we come to chapter 3 and we hear those words that we have celebrated for the last several weeks. But now. 
But now, something incredible has happened. What, ha- what has happened? We have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Justified means that we have been taken from that guilty standpoint and put in an innocent standpoint. And you may ask, well, how is that possible? If we are unable to earn our innocence back ourselves, then how is it possible that we who have all broken the law of God are now, now suddenly innocent? And the response is because of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. Jesus lived a perfect life. He did not break the law. So he was not, uh, he did not earn punishment. He did not have a sentence that he himself had to carry out. And so he is able and voluntarily did so. He laid down his life to pay our penalty. He died our death. He took our separation from God upon himself. And God shows through the resurrection that that was enough. And so now we come to God, and if we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, now we stand before him, not guilty but innocent, not morally deficient but righteous through the, through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Paul spends then a good chunk of chapter 5 rejoicing in our new position, that we have peace with God now. That we are secure in his unmerited favor. No one can take that away from us. We rejoice in our hope that no longer we look forward to heaven and cross our fingers and toes and hope that we'll get there someday. But now, because Jesus Christ has purchased purchased it for us, now we can know that that is the outcome. Not only that, but we can even rejoice in our sufferings in the here and now because Christ changes everything. So Paul then, in chapter 6, having reminded us of our new position in Christ and the rejoicing that should take place because of it, Paul then goes on in chapter 6 to say that a saved life is a changed life. That a saved life is a changed life. That when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and he changed everything for you. He took you from guilty to innocent. He didn't do so that you would run back to the old way of living. He saved you so that you may live differently in the here and now. You see, justification, that act of going from guilty to innocent is not the end of salvation. It is the beginning point. And from there on out... From there on out, you are being saved through the process of sanctification. In other words, the making of yourself to look more like Christ. We explained it this way, that when a baby is born, there is, an, there is great excitement over that new birth, and rightfully so. But there also is an expectation that that baby will grow and mature and one day be an adult that contributes to society. And if the baby doesn't grow and mature, then there is sorrow over that. There's, there's a, an expectation that hasn't been met that is grieved. In the same way, when you were born again in Christ in a new life, God's expectation is not that you would remain a baby in your faith, but his expectation is that you would grow and mature into an adult Christian who would then contribute to the kingdom in the way that he has gifted you. And if that doesn't happen, then we should be concerned. We should be concerned. 
So it's saved life, it's a changed life. And not only is justification not the end, but the beginning, but we are saved that we may now live differently. Paul goes to great lengths to talk about how we have been freed from the slavery to sin. That that old life has been put to death and no longer are we under sin's dominion that we would be trapped in addiction and, and all of the other things that sin brings with it. But now that we are set free to live as God intended and to follow him. And so the question, uh, Paul then gets to chapter 7, our passage, and he begins to lay out some of the, the details for this life. What does it mean to live differently? And in particular, he's going to end the passage by saying this life that we have that is different, though it is glorious, though it is worth rejoicing over, by the time we get to end of chapter 7, he's going to make it clear there is an ongoing, a persistent struggle that happens. And how do we deal with that? How do we handle that? In reality, you can break chapter 7 down into at least three parts. Verses 1 through 6, he talks about our freedom from the law. In verses 7 through 13, he looks at how the law is not the problem, but that sin is the problem. And then in the last part, the last third of the chapter, we're going to look at that persistent problem that I just mentioned a second ago. So first, let's look at Paul. what Paul says in the first seven verses of our passage to say as he talks about being released from the law. Let's go back to chapter 7. Let's read that together again. It says in verse 1, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives, but her husband, if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to one another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So, free from the law. Paul starts off here, and he is continuing in some ways what he says in chapter 6. Remember in the end of chapter 6, it, it talks about in pretty extensive language that we have been free from sin. And now he's going to say that not only are we free from sin, but now we are free from the law as well. The law that he refers to here in chapter 7 is the Mosaic Code. Uh, for those of you that may not know that term, think Ten Commandments. But it's not just the Ten Commandments. It's the, the entirety of the law that is laid out in Exodus and Leviticus and in the Old Testament. Paul says that's what we are free from. But we're not free from it in the same way that we are free from sin. Paul says that with sin, it's like being free from a slave master, something that is cruel and punishing, something that is out to destroy. With the law, that was never its intention. Um, turn with me over to Galatians. Sorry, I lose every note here that I have. 
Turn with me over to Galatians. We read this just a moment ago. I am struggling today. In Galatians, Paul is going to speak to this very thing. Galatians chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 24. Or sorry, yeah, 23 actually. In verse 23, Paul is going to comment, make make some comments here that speak better into chapter 7. It says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until coming faith could be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, or as our brother read earlier, our tutor, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Just as many of you were baptized into Christ, having put on, having put, having put on Christ. So Paul is explaining in, in Galatians the exact same thing that he is explaining in Romans. That we are free from the law now because of faith. But we're not free from it in the sense that the law was a dictator looking for our destruction. But we're free from it in the sense that it was a former caretaker. It was a former tutor that we once had. I explain it this way. Um, when, I was, uh, when I was in high school, my sophomore year, I had an instructor um, who was kind of filling in. Um, they were not the normal instructor for history. And unfortunately, this individual got placed in our sophomore class, which is the time, and it used to be, I think it still is, the time when you learn all about the U.S. Constitution. So they, struck, they stuck an individual who was not uh, academically trained, they stuck him in a class to be our tutor, so to speak, for the U.S. Constitution. Uh, to say things did not go exactly according to plan would be a correct assumption. Um, there were often times that, the, that this individual, though as good-natured and as good-hearted as he was, uh, it was all he could do to keep the class in order. And heaven forbid someone have a question about the Constitution and how it applied to real life because he wasn't going to be able to answer that whatsoever. The, the reality was is that at the, the end of the year, we were going to have to take a test on the Constitution, and he, did a, he, not through fault of his own, did a very poor job of getting us to that point. He was not going to be our means by salvation from this test by any stretch of the imagination. To say that I used that to my advantage would probably be true as well. And so it was good when the instructor who was supposed to be in there would come back. And they would teach us exactly how to understand what we were reading and how to follow it and how to apply it. In the same way, Paul says in Galatians that the law was a tutor. That it was never meant to be the long-term solution to the problem or the test. But rather, it, it acted as a placeholder until Christ came. And because of this, there's an awkwardness with the law. Because it was always a placeholder, because it was a tutor, a caregiver, there was always an awkwardness there. Just as there was an awkwardness between me and this instructor. Or to think of it in another term, maybe a babysitter. We've all experienced that on one form or another, either being the babysitter or being the child or being the parent. 
There's an awkwardness there. There might be an, an appreciation. There might be uh, even uh, some sense of obedience, but there's always an awkwardness. In the same way, there's an awkwardness with us and the law. Why is there this awkwardness? Because the law cannot save. Because the law simply cannot save us. When we look at the law, we see this list of do's and don'ts. What we understand pretty quickly is that we can't keep it all. And not only can we not keep it, but that in order for us to be right with God, according to the law, that we must make a blood sacrifice. But that blood sacrifice only atones for the sin that has been given in the exact moment. And so if we sin again, then we have to make another sacrifice. And if we sin after that, we have to make another sacrifice because those things in and of themselves do not have the fullness of what we need. This is better explained once again in another one of the books, one another one of the letters that we have. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10 with me. For those of you that are studying on Wednesday nights through this wonderful book, you are going to get here shortly, I assume. But in chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews spells this awkwardness out a little bit better. In verse 1, it says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to, offer, to be offered since the worshipers, having been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Drop down with me then to verse 11. It says, And every priest stands daily at his surface, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those that are, who are being sanctified. So Paul, or, or the writer of Hebrews, we're not sure if it's Paul or someone else, spells out this awkwardness that the law could never save us fully because the blood of an animal was never going to take our place fully. The only thing that could do that was a representative from ourselves. And ultimately, we find that representative in Jesus Christ. And he lays down his life and he pays the penalty for all of us once and for all. So now we are free from the tutor. We are free from the caregiver. And no longer do we have to follow their rules. No longer are we tied to that system. In fact, now we are freed from it in such a way that we can live under the one who truly has authority. No longer do we... No longer do we listen to the tutor, now we listen to the teacher. No longer do we listen to the babysitter, now we listen to the father. And so we have a completely different existence because of these things. Not only that, and so Christ completes the law, I should say. So Christ completes the law and gives a better covenant. He gives us a better way than what was before. So Paul un unfolds this idea. The law was there. 
to keep us going the right direction so that we may follow and, and learn how to have a relationship with God, but it was incomplete. There was an awkwardness between us and it because it couldn't save. Christ comes, he completes the law and gives us a better covenant. So now we walk in it, no longer beholden to the law that came before. Paul, though, anticipates a problem. He anticipates a problem in the second part of this chapter. We're going to go through this very quickly. But in verse 7 of chapter 7, he says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Paul says, I anticipate a problem here. I anticipate the problem that when you read the end of chapter 6 and you see the freedom from sin that I describe, and then you hear me describe the freedom from the law at the beginning of chapter 7, that you're going to try to say those two things are the same. And that you're going to try to say this, that the law of God, in other words, the word of God, can somehow be evil. He says, that is not true whatsoever. The truth is, is that sin is the problem, not the law. Sin is our problem, not the law. This argument goes back to what we see in chapter 5, verse 20. Going back just a little bit, it says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where the sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so, a few weeks ago, when we looked at chapter 5, we unpacked this idea of what does the law do? If the law is good, as Paul contends, then why does he say that at times the law leads to the abundance of sin? Why, why do we say that? Well, we see two things. Going back to 520, the two points that we made there. First, that the law gives full awareness. Remember, what, look at what he says there again in chapter 7. He says, yet if it not been for the law, I would not have known sin. If it wasn't for God's word, I wouldn't have known what sin was. I wouldn't have known that I was doing wrong. I wouldn't have known that there was a problem. There are um, times that if you go down a road, if you're like me, you go down a road, um, and this happens to me all the time when Melissa and I go to South Carolina. There'll be a two-lane road with a yellow line and two white lines on the outside, outside of the city limits. In the state of Missouri, in general, if you see two yellow, the yellow line in the middle, two white lines on the outside, and you're outside the city limits, the speed limit is 55 in general, okay? He's laughing because we have another story. In general, it's 55. In South Carolina, that is not at all the norm. <laughs> that is not at all the norm. The norm generally there is that the speed limit is 35. And it doesn't matter if you're outside the city limits or not. You'd best not be going 55, and I thank God every day that when we go out, that South Carolina posts that limit like every five feet, it feels like. Because otherwise, I wouldn't know that I was outside the law. Otherwise, I wouldn't know that I was doing something wrong. I was. Now, if a state patrol, a South Carolina state patrol pulled me over and told me that I was going over the speed limit, he wouldn't allow me to say, well, I'm sorry, sir, I didn't know. Like, that's not going to fly, Right? He's going to say, no, you were doing wrong. So I'm thankful that there is a sign posted that tells me what I should be doing. In the same way, the law 
The law posts for us, hey, here is what sin looks like. Here's what it looks like to break the law of God. And what we find is we were already doing those things. It wasn't like we were innocent before the law. It's just that now we have a better understanding of what it looks like. It gives us a full awareness. When, when we realize what we were doing wrong, we also realize the consequence of doing that which is wrong. But the law does something else. Unfortunately, with the law, sin takes the law, it takes that mo- those commandments, and it uses the law for direct disobedience. I, use, I gave the example a couple of weeks ago when we first looked through this chapter 5, verse 20. I gave the example of a child. When I was a kid, mom and dad would occasionally say something along the lines of, don't do that. And I would think in my child brain and my teenage brain, you know, I never thought about doing that before, but that actually sounds pretty fun. Maybe I'll give that a try. I wasn't going to roll down that hill, but now that you have said don't roll down the hill, by golly, that, that could be fun, right? You say go down on the sled one at a time, but now that I think about it, putting two on there would be a lot more fun, and putting three would be even better, right? We've all done this, right? We've all had someone say, don't do this, and our first thought is, that's exactly what I want to do. I hadn't thought about it before, but that's now exactly what I want to do. Don't have that cookie on that counter. I didn't even know there was a cookie, but now that I do, right? In the same way, the law says, don't do this. He gives the example of covet. He says, don't covet. Don't desire that which others have. Be content with what you have. And Paul says, I didn't know what it was to covet, but now that I know about it, I I do it all the time. I see it and I want it for myself. I'm not content with what I have. So sin uses the law for direct disobedience. So it's not the law that's the problem. It's not the Mosaic covenant that's the problem. It's our own fleshly desire to do things the way that we want to do them. It's our own fleshly desire to be our own king, to be our own Lord. And so Paul concludes this passage, this part of the the chapter by saying, um, down in verse 12, so the law is holy The commandment is holy and righteous and good. So he wraps that up. He says the the law is good. We should want the law. We should desire the law. If we are believers of Jesus Christ, then we should want what is good and right. And the law is good and right. The word of God should be our passion. And obeying it should be a pleasure. But Paul says there is a persistent problem, a persistent struggle in the life of a believer. Now, some debate on whether he is talking about the believer here, but I want to just point out a couple things. One, notice that the tense changes. The verb tenses change. They go from somewhat being past tense to mostly being present tense. So he's talking about himself in the here and now. Also notice that he says in two different places, I desire the law of God in my innermost being. That does not happen for an unsaved person. Someone that has never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ does not desire the goodness of God. They are free from that. They are free from desiring to do what is right. They're they're free from conviction over what they have done that is wrong. It's why when I have an individual that comes to me and says, I'm not sure about my salvation. I'm like, but one one of the things I want to ask them is, are you convicted of your sin? Because that conviction is a pretty big sign that something's going on in your life. 
So Paul says, I delight in it. So there's some, some key things here that we see that are, make it fairly clear to, my, to me, at least, that we are talking about a believer. But there's a problem. There's a persistent struggle that Paul describes. Having said that the law is good, he says this, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Going a little farther down in verse, uh, verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in men in me that is in my flesh, for I desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And then going on to verse 21, so I find it to be the law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me a captive, making me captive the law of sin that dwells in my members. He says there's a persistent struggle here. The struggle for the believer is that we are caught between the perfect law of God, the word of God, and our flesh. Now, let's backtrack just a second here. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says, you are no longer a slave to sin. You don't have to obey sin any longer. You are now free to chase after Christ and to obey him, to follow him. And so that is the mark of a believer, that we put sin behind us and we chase after Christ. The problem is, the persistent struggle in our life is, is that sin is always hanging out. Sin is like that house guest that just won't go away. I don't know if you've ever had a friend like this, and we use the, friend, the term friend maybe loosely, but they come over to your house one time, and man, I pray none of you are thinking of me. They come over to your house one time, and then it's like they hang around the rest of the time like begging to come back, right? They, they hang around, you invite them over one time, and then after that, they think that your house is their house, and they want to come back and they, they, want to, they want to use your stuff and your tools and all of this other stuff. And you're just like, I just, I, I need to get away. Sin is that way. Sin is the house guest that will not leave nor leave you alone. Sin constantly wants to come back and reclaim its place in your home over and over again. One commentator says the life of a Christian is to shut the door on sin and remind it that it has no place here anymore. We are caught between the law of God and our flesh because we desire, though we desire to obey him, we consistently have this urge to go back to the way things were. We consistently have this urge to go back to when we were calling the shots, we think. So we desire, though we desire God's commands, though we desire to do what's right, what we find is we're unable to keep them because we keep doing the things that we don't want to do. Even as Christians, we continue to sin. And so we find then that we are at war with ourselves. We're at war with ourselves. With half of us wanting to follow God and to obey him perfectly and the other half of us Desiring to go back to sin and the world and all the pleasures that it offers. There's half of us that want the treasure of God and there's the other half of us that want the mud pies of the world because they were comfortable and we knew them. 
James says this war does not impact just us. James chapter 4, verse 1 through 3 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Paul says, this conflict inside of you, the side that wants to do good and the side that wants to do bad, that conflict doesn't impact just you, it also impacts others. It impacts your relationships with others, and specifically, it impacts your relationships with those inside the church. The church should be marked by what? It should be marked by love. It should be marked by serving one another, bearing with one another, being patient with one another, valuing others more important than yourself. And yet at times, at times, we all know that that's not what marks us. There are times when Bitterness creeps in, jealousy creeps in, unforgiveness creeps in. We don't have patience with one another. We certainly don't bear with one another. We don't look at others more highly than ourselves. And so we have conflict, we have strife. There are times that, that even members of, of a church family, that, that they, they clash. James says, why does that, the scripture tells us, James tells us, why does that happen? It happens because there's a war going on inside of us. So friend, brother and sister in Christ, when you are jealous towards someone, when you are bitter towards someone, when you're harboring unforgiveness towards someone and you're tempted to say, I don't understand why that person is acting that way, the best thing for us to do is look in the mirror and go, what is the war going on inside of me? What is it that's going on inside of me right now that I am feeling this way? What do I need to look at? Because it's a persistent struggle that impacts everything in our lives, which is why Paul cries out, who will rescue us? Going to the end of this chapter, he says in verse 23, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And then in verse 24, we see like Paul's emotion in this moment that he's built up as he's talked about this, this persistent struggle, and he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? This is a very personal cry of Paul. This isn't just an academic exercise anymore. This is something that he's looking in the mirror and he's saying, there is something wrong with me. I don't want to be like this. I desire to follow him, desire to obey him, and yet I keep going back to those things that I don't want to. Who can save me? Who can solve this? And he reminds us there is only one, Jesus. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, the one who justifies you is also the one who sanctifies you. We talk all the time about that we are not good enough to save ourselves, right? And that Jesus Christ had to do that for us. And we understand that we couldn't move ourselves from guilty to innocent. 
And so we cry out to God, save us, and he does just that. But then we somehow think that when we get to the other side of salvation, when we get to the other side of that moment, that suddenly we can do it on our own, that suddenly we can live better on our own. And what we find is, no, that's not true. The one who justified us is also the one who sanctifies us. You want to know how to overcome this persistent struggle? Fix your eyes upon him. You want to know how to overcome those desires, how to live not as a slave to righteousness, but in the freedom of life, as a slave to him, Paul says? Fix your eyes upon Christ. Call out to him. I'm reminded, and I know we've gone on for a long time this morning, but listen to this last part. We're going to close with this. I'm reminded as I read chapter 7 of Peter. You probably know this story well, but there's a moment in the Gospels where Jesus sends the disciples ahead in a boat and tells them, I'll catch up, don't worry about me. So they go out in the boat and they get out into the, the water and what they find is a storm comes up and they're making little progress. In fact, they're becoming very discouraged and even worried. And about that time, they look out and they see Jesus walking on the water and he's, he's passing them by, like there's not even anything happening and so they begin to cry out to him, and they, they have a short discussion with him, and eventually Peter looks at Jesus and says, if you are the Lord, then call me out to you. Call, let me walk on the water. And Jesus, in not so many words, says, come on. And so Peter gets out of the boat. And he walks on water for a little bit. But then in the middle of walking on the water, it dawns on him, I should not be doing this. This shouldn't be possible. And he looks around him and the, the wind is still there and the waves are still there and everything is still happening. And for an instant, Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus and I gotta think a little part of me is thinking, I need to get back in the boat right now. And what happens? He sinks into the very thing that he once was struggling with. He sinks right back into it. Now, in maybe even more danger than he was before, and he begins to cry out, who saves him? Is it the boat? No. They cannot help him. The world cannot save him. It is Christ, the one that called him out in the first place. Brother or sister, at one point you gave your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you stepped out of the boat. And Christ did a miracle in your life. And he gave you life where there shouldn't have been any. He gave you hope where there shouldn't have been any. He did miracles in your life. And you are, you are walking after him. And you were doing well. And then at some point, you began to look around at the world. And you begin to remember, oh, I had it good when this was going on. Or oh, I really enjoyed doing that. Or you looked at the storms of life and you were like, man, what am I doing out here? And you begin to worry and to fret. And you took your eyes off of him and you sank. Oh, brother and sister, would you cry out to him in a cry of repentance, Father, forgive me for taking my eyes off of you. Forgive me that I have stopped following you. Come and rescue me. This isn't being saved again, okay? Let me make that clear. This isn't being saved again. This is realizing that we need to focus on him. He pulled Peter up out of that water and they walked together on the water.
brother and sister, he calls you out of the boat to walk with him. Keep your eyes on him. Call out to him. And you will find him. This morning, I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up. We're going to have a time of response. My church family, this this message is largely directed at you this morning. It's largely directed at us who have already stepped out of the boat, who have already placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But somewhere along the lines, we have taken our eyes off of Christ and we've sunk back in the mire. We've gone back to the way life was before and we need to repent. Maybe it is that you need to repent of not only sin in your life, but you need to repent of maybe your attitude towards some other people. James tells us that all of this war inside of us, it leaves the quarrels outside. Maybe you need to repent with somebody else this morning too and to ask for forgiveness, to change your attitude towards that individual. Maybe you need to do the really hard thing and go talk to them. I don't know. But this morning I pray that you wouldn't, wouldn't just let this message pass through one ear and out the other, but that you would ask the Lord to come and to save you help you to walk on the water and follow him wherever he might lead. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. And Lord, all of us stand before you understanding and acknowledging this struggle that is in us. That as your children, we desire to follow you. And yet what we find is that we are unable to do that on our own. That we constantly are tripping and falling that some of us, and certainly I have at different points in my life, that we have started to sink and we are still in great need of you. Father, I pray, help us to, to repent, to ask for forgiveness, to turn back to you. Help us to go to those that we have wronged and ask for forgiveness. Help our attitudes towards our brothers and sisters to change as we focus in on on a Savior who has done the same for us, who has loved us well, who has been patient with us, who has waited on us, who has put us before himself. Father, I pray, Lord, do a work in our hearts today. We ask this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.